Unfortunately, the problems that Silicon Valley Bank had, they're not exclusive to SVB. You look at this and say, if, if the entire regional banking ecosystem fails and there's a crisis of confidence that any given regional bank is going to be supported, that's going to not be a good thing for a next line of regionals, and this could really snowball. Welcome to the Lost Debate, a show for Political Eclectics. I'm Robbie Gupta, and this is a special Monday episode where we're talking about this crisis at Silicon Valley Bank and potentially some other banks. And I have a special guest today, Brad Hargreaves, who is a entrepreneur. He's the founder and chairman of Common, a co-living company that I see everywhere in New York City. Uh, he is also the co-founder of General Assembly, a juggernaut of a for-profit education company that I have some friends who've come out of. Um, they do really amazing stuff. Uh, and he's also sits on several boards, including Loftium, Playcrafting, and At the Table. Brad, welcome to the podcast. Robbie, thank you so much for having me. Excited to be here. All right, Brad. Well, I, let's get this out of the way. Are you a customer of SVB? I am not. I've uh, known them for quite some time and uh, I've interacted with them a fair bit. But uh, we at Common Bank with First Republic, um, so we have uh, we do not have any debt from Silicon Valley Bank. Got it. All right. Well, uh, you caught my attention because you've been tweeting about this and you had a really interesting Twitter thread about what to make of this from a few days ago. And so much has changed since then. But let's turn back the clock uh, to last week when all of this was going down. For our audience who hasn't been following this closely, just give us the rundown. Like, w What happened here last week to precipitate this crisis? Yeah, so I think you have to look somewhat back in time to understand some of the challenges that Silicon Valley Bank was facing. Um, but this was really a classic bank run where a number of Silicon Valley Bank's depositors, uh, prompted by, in many cases, their venture investors, got spooked uh, that Silicon Valley Bank was not going to have the liquidity to meet their deposits if they wanted to withdraw. Uh, so there was a on Thursday there was really a, a classic bank run. Um, so it's it's very different than 2008 in a number of ways. You know 2008, you know those banks really made uh, risky bad loans. They held toxic assets. This you know SVB obviously made poor decisions in terms of managing the yield curve and in terms of making. A lot of bets on you know long-term treasuries and bonds back when rates were much lower that didn't give them the liquidity they needed uh, when they when they needed it. But this is this is some early 20th century stuff. Um, a bunch of people got together and decided that they didn't have trust and didn't have faith in the bank, and all tried to deposit and all tried to withdraw at once, and that caused a bank run. So, Brad, you know, you were talking about how this was some 20, early 20th century stuff, but I've seen some people claim that this is actually, if not uniquely of our times, very much of our times in the sense that the speed at which the information traveled about this, and in some cases, potentially misinformation about this, uh, and what happened and how insolvent this bank was or wasn't, but also, more importantly, the speed at which people could pull their money out of this institution. Like, it used to be that you have to go to an actual physical bank to pull the money out, but now everybody could sit at their computer, ostensibly, and, and pull out their money. Uh, what do you make of that claim? Well, I think that's very right, and it is 
I think the challenging part of that is you can now have a bank run on a much larger national scale institution like Silicon Valley Bank. Used to be banks were, you know, in the early 20th century when you had bank runs, banks were community organizations. There was a branch downtown and people would have to gather and, you know, show up at the branch. Uh, today you don't have to, you know, you don't have to do that. You can withdraw from anywhere. So bank runs are now capable of bringing down much larger and much more distributed organizations. Most people wouldn't know where to find a Silicon Valley bank branch, but they can pull out their phones and schedule a wire out of the bank. And I think social media is a big driver of this as well. I mean, you get on Twitter, social networks, the engagement algorithms are you know, really encourage uh, and they amplify, I would say, alarmist views. And if you were out there saying, mm -hmm. no, everything is fine, you probably weren't going to get a lot of traction on Twitter. If you were going out and saying, bank run starts tomorrow, everything's the sky is falling, that's what's going to get the engagement and the amplification. So it's not just about mobile banking and the interconnectedness. It's also the, the algorithms themselves and what they promote. And so in, in getting to the sort of core claim, right, like if people were on the Internet saying, hey, there, there it really isn't a problem here, what, what was the truth at the beginning of this story? Like was Silicon Valley, quote unquote, insolvent, as some people were saying it was, uh, or were they somewhere in between insolvent and healthy? Well, yes, it's, it's, it's all the above. Um, there were fundamental issues at Silicon Valley Bank based on, you know, and you, you, to understand those issues, you have to start with, you know, 2019, 2020, when tech was seeing a lot of investment, a lot of capital, a lot of success, and a lot of those investments that venture firms were making in tech companies ended up at Silicon Valley Bank. So, the chart of their deposits just, it, I think it's 3x going up from 2019 to 2021. So they have all this extra cash and they have to figure out what to do with it. They have to put it to work and gener generate a return. That's the banking business. So they choose to go and purchase long-term treasuries and long-term bonds. That seems like a very safe investment strategy. It's very different than what you saw in 2008 when banks were buying uh, very risky assets. However, they did not anticipate that rates would move the way rates moved. And when interest rates increase, suddenly people can, have, can purchase treasuries, purchase bonds at much higher rates of return. So the old long-term treasuries and bonds that Silicon Valley was uh, holding decrease in value. Now, those bonds are still going to pay out what, like their face value, what they what they promise. Uh, the U.S. government is is not likely going to default on its treasuries, but unfortunately, you have to wait ten years or whatever the uh, the the term, the maturity of the bond is for that money. And so if you need money tomorrow because, say, your depositors are pulling out their money, 
you can't get it. You have to go sell those bonds, sell those treasuries on the market and take a significant loss. And what spooked people is that day on, on, on I believe, Wednesday, they went out and sold a big portfolio of their bonds and took a $2 billion loss on that. And that's certainly a survivable loss for Silicon Valley Bank, but it spooked people because they said, if they're willing to take a $2 billion loss, their situation's got to be pretty bad. And that's really what started the run. Yeah. And then at that point, you had sort of prominent VCs telling people to, you know, their companies to pull money out of SVB, which seemed to be the death blow. But, you know, there's, and we'll get to that whole dynamic. One thing I'm confused about, and maybe you have an answer to this, is I can't tell, you know, some people are saying, as, uh, you know, it's Silicon Valley Bank and the kinds of assets they were holding on their books, you know, these bonds, for example, they were doing that because of post 2008 regulation that basically asks them to be more liquid than we have been in the past and asks them to take less risky bets with people's money. And they were just doing what was asked of them. So there's one camp of people saying, look, this is the government's fault for, you know, for requiring these types of assets. And then they got stuck with them. And it's also the government's fault for, you know, how the, the Fed has been playing with interest rates. So they basically were asking them to hold things like these bonds. And then the Fed is raising interest rates. So basically the Fed put them in this position. That's like, that's one take on this. The other take is that any bailout, and we'll get to where we are today with the federal intervention, any intervention, any quote unquote bailout, whether this is a bailout or not, uh, is a, uh, feeding moral hazard because SVP was irresponsible with the investments that they were making. And, uh, you know, there was a take from Vivek Ramaswamy, for example, in the Wall Street Journal this morning, where he basically went through and said, there are a couple of problems with this bank. Number one is that they had a pr pretty low percent of deposits that were insured. So like, they, like given that they deal with so many Silicon Valley companies, these weren't just like your average depositor, like, like you or me putting money in there. Like these, some of these companies were putting well in excess of the insured $250,000. Two is that they were like, and I don't think we need to go into this, but they were they were booking things as held to maturity instead of available for sale. And that, like, I guess, according to Vivek, was a bit of like a cute bookkeeping piece that that either like shielded, you know, investors and people from knowing fully what was going on with these or something. But then said also that they were um, they didn't hedge their interest rate risk. And so that they had um, 120 billion securities portfolio. Um, and weren't hedging at all, like the fact that they could find themselves in this situation. So one camp saying bail them out, moral hazard. One camp saying it's the government's fault that they're in their position, so the government bears responsibility here. Are you on any of these sides? <laughs> I, I, I think both sides are wrong. And the reason is that you know, Silicon Valley Bank you know, clearly mismanaged risk here. Uh, yes, these were the kind of assets that you know is, are very safe and that uh, the government wanted them to hold. On the other hand, you know they didn't have to pick the maturities and, and, and pick the terms they picked. And there are certainly ways they could have managed risk better. Um, on the other hand, I don't really buy the moral hazard argument 
when you're talking about depositors. Because what the FDIC intervention yesterday did is it is it protected depositors, but it wiped all stockholders in Silicon Valley Bank. It wiped all senior management. It probably wiped the bondholders of Silicon Valley Bank as well. So, you know, this is not other banks aren't going to look at this and say, hey, we can take outsized risk and be fine because the government is going to step in and save us. Like the government didn't save anyone who made those decisions at Silicon Valley Bank. The government saved the depositors. And I don't, unless you, unless, you know, Vivek Ramaswamy believes that depositors should do really detailed research on the balance sheets of their banks, uh, which even the people who did that for Silicon Valley Bank concluded that a bank run was unlikely. I just, I, I don't see the moral hazard here in protecting depositors specifically. Um, I would not have su- supported something that, you know, bailed out the equity holders or the, or the bondholders. So maybe this is a good opportunity to talk about what happened yesterday. So we're recording this on Monday. Yesterday, the Federal Reserve and FDIC announced uh, essentially that they're, quote, taking control, which I, uh, I'm i curious to what that means. So we'll, when when I kick it to you, I'd love to hear your take on exactly what it means to take control of uh, Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank, which is another bank that I, from what I understand, does a lot of dealings in crypto. Uh, the Fed said this is they're going to guarantee all deposits. Then they said this is not a bailout because stock and bondholders and the companies won't be protected. Uh, they designated Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank as a systemic risk to the financial system, which gives them flexibility to guarantee the uninsured deposits. And uh, so they're going to guarantee the uninsured deposits, but also the Fed also said it was going to make additional funding available to the banks through a bank term funding program. And this is where I think the people like the Vivex have an issue, which is they offer loans. They're going to offer loans of up to one year to banks that pledge those securities uh, as collateral. And it seems that they're going to honor the sort of the, the sort of the theoretical value of these, uh, you you may know more about this financing than I do. And I think this is where people like the Vivex of the world are getting upset to the extent he, that's a genuine belief he holds and saying <laughs> like, look, um, the, we're actually honoring the value of these bonds as if they hadn't gone down in value throughout this period of time, if I understand this correctly. Is that your understanding? And maybe that's where people are saying, hey, that bails out the shareholders, that bails out the uh, the executives because it it kind of it 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 bails them out of these, you know, these poor investments that they made. So basically it's capitalism on the way up, socialism on the way down. Yeah, I think you know, th- th- there is that you know, kind of the question of what does it mean that they're looking at their their bond portfolios, you know, at par versus versus market value, and I think there is there is certainly some fuzziness here in terms of when you go beyond Silicon Valley Bank to the other at risk banks, is there a you know air quotes bailout? of, you know, the First Republic's 
of the world to prevent contagion, to prevent this, is the risk that emerged over the weekend, is that if depositors don't believe that their deposits in regional banks are safe, that there is going to be a run on all of the regional banks. So, and effectively, every business, every high net worth individual with more than $250,000 is going to pull their money out of those regional banks and put them in Citi, JP Morgan, Wells Fargo, one of the big four. And that would be bad for the country. It would be bad for the financial ecosystem. It would concentrate uh, a lot more power in the hands of very, very few institutions if, if regional banks went away. And unfortunately, the problems that Silicon Valley Bank had, they're not exclusive to SVB. SVB had a pretty bad version of them, but it wasn't the only bank that suffered from these issues of having bought long-term bonds, long-term treasuries. That said, I think the government stepping in and saying, hey, we are going to look at these bond portfolios with, you know, on their par value, on their face value, um, is a fairly light touch intervention to prevent contagion in the regional banking economy. Right. Um, And doesn't it, it doesn't actually have anything to do with SVB specifically. Yeah, I think the question of systemic risk is is what's on everybody's minds this morning. So before we record this podcast, we're recording this on Monday morning. As of the time I sat down to record First Republic, you know, which is I think a bank. I think you said, did you say First Republic is your bank uh, at the beginning of this? Yeah. Is that what you said? Yes, that is the uh, bank Common uses. So they are uh, <laughs> their shares plunged more than seventy percent before the bell. Something I'm sure that's on your mind. Uh, at least of the time that we sat down uh, to record this podcast, Bank of America shares were down 5%, which is the worst among the four U.S. banks at the time that I, that we were sitting down. Now, I think that offers an interesting you know, dichotomy to underscore what you just said, which is why is Bank of America down 5%, but First Republic is down 70%? It's because I think the way that the the sort of previously viewed too big to fail banks are in a healthier position in an environment like this than a First Republic, which is probably less diversified, more vulnerable. And it begs the question, are all these banks too big to fail, right? So if we're viewing SVB as a systemic risk at, what was it, $200 billion in assets? Like, that's a way smaller bank than the previously too big to fail Lehman Brothers, you know, Bear Stearns style banks. Well, I think we're looking at it as the regional banking ecosystem writ large is 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 too big to fail. Uh, that is, you know, it, it it is not in anyone's interest for there to be this understanding among depositors that if you're at Bank of America, your deposits are fine and they're insured. If they are at First Republic, they are not. Now. You know, I, I think one of the surprising things here, just as an aside, is the amount of balances that these companies were keeping in their bank accounts. You know, not not sweeping them to money market funds, not doing anything, not doing more sophisticated treasury management, 
um, which, you know, if, if, if you're doing more sophisticated treasury management, it's obviously a massive inconvenience if your bank fails, but it should not be as as existential as it was as it was appearing for for a lot of startups. So that's that's a bit of an aside. I think you're going to see a lot more interest in treasury and cash management uh, in the in the tech sector going forward. Um, but you know, you, you look at this and say, if if the entire regional banking ecosystem fails and there's a crisis of confidence that any given regional bank is going to be supported, uh, that's, you know, and, and if First Republic fails, you know, First Republic is not really associated with the tech ecosystem. They're not associated with crypto. Uh, that's going to not be a good thing for a next line of regionals, and this could really snowball. Yeah, I would say like last week, and you probably had this experience, people were canceling meetings Thursday, Friday. All these people I'm having meetings with are like, I got to take care of this. The next conversation became for people who weren't with SVB, they were like, well, what is this bank I'm I'm in right now? Like, who are they? <laughs> like, it seemed quaint that they were offering me slightly better terms on this or that. But maybe I am safer with a Chase. Maybe I am safer with a Bank of America. And, and that's where I agree with people that, that that is not good. There are certain people making good points about, like, you know, Matthew Iglesias, for example, I think made it, made an interesting point worth taking seriously that maybe we want a little bit more consolidation, which I think is like a, a point worth debating, uh, but one that I'm certainly not ready to debate yet. I, I, I don't think I have like a sophisticated enough view about the role of local banks versus medium-sized banks, which is what these things would become. But he does make a point that I think I wanted to ask you about, which is the role of the Fed. So, you know, what, what Iglesias and some of these people are saying is the Fed is confusing everybody because they're saying we want to raise interest rates and raising interest rates is going to cause pain. It's going to cause high unemployment. It's going to potentially cause some people to not be able to buy houses. It's going to cause some people who have adjustable rate mortgages maybe not to be able to afford the house that they have. It's going to, you know, cause you know, all sorts of like short, hopefully short-term pain in the economy so that we can, you know, keep inflation down and, and you know, avoid something worse. And so what he's saying is, well, the Fed uh, needs to, number one, explain what kind of pain is acceptable and not, because it seems like they're saying this kind of pain is not acceptable. Maybe other types of pain are acceptable. And two is, there's all this speculation that, the Fed now will slow their interest rate hikes or potentially even pause them in response to this. At what that would be also be really confusing because they're saying like, hey, we need to endure this pain, but the first sight of real trouble in the financial sector and they're gonna panic. So do you have like I think I've seen you tweet a little bit about the Fed, but like do you do you share concerns about the sort of confusion and legitimacy about the Fed of the Fed in this fight? I certainly, I certainly do, and I think it is, and, and this is a, a broader macro point that may not be what we want to get into here, but I find interest rate increases to be a very ham-fisted way of cooling an economy and bringing down inflation. Right. Uh, Agreed. That is, it's, it's basically you keep raising the, the the rates until you experience some kind of you know some kind of pain, some kind of crisis. Uh, you know what the Fed is trying to do is engineer a soft landing. So can we slow down 
home construction? Can we, you know, stop increases in prices, wages, et cetera, without creating a recession and crisis? Because, you know, you say, okay, we're going to need a number of job losses, whatever, in order to stop the wage price hikes. How do you make sure it stops there? Right. And having cascading bank failures is definitely not what they want to do. And is that that's how you actually kick off a very hard landing. Uh, but you know, I'm 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 an advocate of supply side interventions. I mean, you mentioned uh, Matt Iglesias. I know he's argued for those. You know, um, and, and you need to have. And unfortunately, not all of these are in control of the federal government. You need regulatory reform, permitting reforms. You need to make it easier to build more housing. Um, those are the things you really need to do to stop inflation without causing a debt crisis right. or causing a banking crisis. And unfortunately, we don't seem to have control of that lever. Right. Yeah. I, I've talked about on this podcast, like, for instance, the the need to to build more housing, for example, I, I totally agree. Like that that is a huge tool to decrease inflation. It decreased the cost of a very important expensive good that people have, right? You know, this is a thing I, I know you're you think about a lot at Common, right? Because you have people coming to you in right. part because of the insanity of how expensive it is to move to some of these cities. And as I've talked about in this podcast, and people get confused when I say this, the raising of the interest rates raises the cost of housing. Correct. It, people, I, I, I got voicemails to people saying, oh, it's it decreases the cost of the house. Yeah, like the book value cost of the house, but the most important thing to people is not how much that house is worth today. By and large, it's how much your mortgage payment is. If you look at the life of a, of a mortgage, right? You're paying more in interest than you are in anything else. So if that interest rate, if your interest rates are higher, you're actually seeing inflation in housing. Right. And I, I wish that the Fed would be a little bit more sophisticated about this. Well, if you look at what's driving inflation today, as you said, it is it is housing costs, and a lot of it is driven by lagging indicators the Fed is using of you know rent increases that happened six, 12 months ago that are no longer happening. But what the Fed is, what the, the higher interest rate policy is doing is making it harder to finance new housing construction that would deliver in two or three years. So, yep. you know, I see this. You know, I, I'm in the real estate industry, so I see this uh, front and center, you know, projects, housing projects that would have made financial sense 12 months ago just don't make financial sense today. Uh, much harder to get construction financing. And, you know, sellers, people who own land, uh, developable land, they don't immediately adjust their price based on interest rates. They say, hey, you know, I want... $5 million for my vacant land. Yes, people are only willing to pay $3 million right now because of where rates are. They're not just going to take $3 million unless they're distressed. They're going to wait for the next cycle, which might be five, seven years away. Um, and that housing doesn't get built. Yeah. I mean, you know, one good that could come out of this is if if people are correct, like some people predicting that the Fed will pause hikes, which I'm not convinced that that's going to happen, but if that does happen or they slow hikes, that could be a good thing. But this gets to the politics of this. 
So I know you're not an expert on the politics of this kind of stuff, but it's very much on my mind. And I, I saw Sam Altman tweeted something like, if this were called like the Farmer's Bank of, you know, whatever county, Santa Clara County, you know, it would be a different, there'd be a different feel to this whole thing. Uh, because apparently they do have, you know, a decent amount of farmers, uh, at least people with it from the vineyards, which I know are not exactly the most politically <laughs> salient uh, farmers. But like, let's pretend this was a bank in Ohio, right? Like a farmer's bank in Ohio that had this problem, which, you know, you know, potentially could be true. I do think the concentration of tech within this bank was uniquely problematic in terms of the inflow outflows, as you described. But like, it is rather politically difficult for the Fed and the Biden administration to manage a rescue of a bank that is so associated with a sector that the American public doesn't want to do any favors for. <laughs> so, right. like, what's your sense of the politics? It's obviously we talked about Vivek, right, running for president. Uh, you have all these people who are the populists, and you're going to see it on the left and the right, the populists jumping in here to, to say, look, like, we're bailing out, quote unquote, to the tech sector. Like, I know you're not an expert on the politics, but how do you see these politics playing out here? Because I see this as a, another red meat. It's not, I don't think it'll necessarily lead to like a Tea Party like movement, but I do think this will be a talking point. On, for populists out there who want to say the system is rigged in favor of the wealthy. Yeah, it's it, it, it's interesting. And I think the the end result of, of what happened yesterday was fortunately largely in line with how the FDIC handles every single other bank failure. I mean, these are uh, people forget that there have been a lot of bank failures since 2008. It wasn't that you had a couple back in 2008 and you have a big one right now. You know, Every year, a few banks fail. And we don't hear about it because it is the Farmers Bank of Ohio that failed. And the same thing that happened this weekend happens then. The FDIC steps in. It says depositors are fully covered. You know, There, there haven't been examples in the United States in many, many decades of depositors losing their money in a bank failure, even depositors with balances in excess of $250,000. The FDIC doesn't do that. So I'm glad that the Fed and the FDIC was able to look beyond the politicization of this and handle this the way they handle any other bank failure. So that being said, you know, you look about the political implications you know, once again, I'm not a political a politics expert by any by any stretch, but I think it will be interesting if this drives a rift between the Silicon Valley right and the populist right. Yeah. Because you've seen over the past couple of years, particularly since the Biden administration, um, more Silicon Valley figures overtly line, aligning with the Republican Party. Um, you know, Musk is an example, of, a great example of this. Teal. Uh, there have been plenty of, yeah. Teal is another, but there are plenty of others. I, I wonder if this drives that rift and if if the Republican Party, you know, meat and potatoes, people like uh, Vivek Ramaswamy come out and say, this is, you know, we stand against tech and Silicon Valley. Does that drive a rift? Uh, within the Republican Party. Yeah, my prediction on that is it doesn't. And the reason why is 
for the same reasons why the people who benefit from monopoly concentration, like Teal sometimes, uh, you know, like famously made a lot of money on Meta, for example, and is a proponent of monopolies. <laughs> he explicitly <laughs> says he wants the companies that will be monopolies. Will also back candidates who are more populist right that are railing against tech monopolies. I think there's this two step that they feel like they can get away with. That's my prediction. Is that they'll be like, all right, we got our we got our rescue. I don't want to call it a bailout, but we we got what we needed. All is fine, and we could use the politics of this to our advantage. <laughs> that's my sense. Maybe I'm too cynical about this, but that's my yeah. sense of the politics of this. Well, it you know, it you look back 10, 15 years to the Republican Party. I mean, you had a you know, not a tech business elite, but a, you know, a broader based business elite that kind of forged this alliance with people pretty far to the right. And it served them well for a while until 2016 came and it didn't. Right. Um, and I wonder if, you know, tech is going down a similar path of, of forging this uneasy alliance with the populist right yeah. that fundamentally does not like them, um, but they feel they can use for some period of time. It will certainly be interesting to see uh, see how it shakes out. Well, uh, with that, any, any other quick predictions? I mean, it's probably ill-advised at this point, given how fast this is to make any um, predictions right now about this week, but maybe maybe medium to long term predictions about what this means for either the banking sector or you know what you're an expert on, which is startup culture. Like, is this going to affect in any way startup culture? Because from what I understand, this bank was. I, I'm shocked at the sheer amount of people in my life who had dealings with this bank. Basically, anybody I know who's been involved with startups had some relationship with this bank. And and from what I read, it wasn't just that they were banking for their business. In some cases, this bank was giving people mortgages before they would um, you know, qualify for other banks. And you yeah. know, they're getting bridge loans for companies that uh, that wouldn't have the cash flow to to justify it in other contexts, et cetera. So this bank was was really important to to startups all across the country. Is there is there any long-term effect to this, you think, on startup culture generally or the health of startups? Well, I think those are some of the more interesting implications of this uh, now that it feels, at least for now, sitting here at 10 a.m. on Monday morning, that you know there will not be broader financial sector con- contagion. But Silicon Valley Bank, you know, the best analogy is they were the local credit union of the tech industry. You know, they did all the things a small town credit union would do. They did business banking, they provided mortgages, they provided business loans, they did a little bit of money management. And they worked uh, on relationships, they, by the way, to use your metaphor. Yes. Yeah, they were they were not like strictly like McKinsey-esque where they're like, hey, Brad, like let me look at your balance sheet and your creditworthiness. They'd basically be like, oh, Mark Andreessen says Brad is cool. You're cool. Yes. We're going to extend you a mortgage. Exactly. And they, they also like the way a credit union would sponsor the county fair and support the local PTA. They did the tech industry equivalent of those things. Uh, they were a big backer of affordable housing projects. They've invested over $2 billion in affordable housing in the Bay Area. A lot of affordable housing developers I know are pretty upset that Silicon Valley Bank is no longer there. 
Um, and there's a number of affordable housing projects in the Bay Area in jeopardy. Um, they were a critical part of the, you know, we laughed about this earlier, the, the wine industry in California. Um, I think there's going to be open questions of, you know, what happens to their portfolio of, of venture debt. They lent money to a lot of startups and that money came with a lot of covenants. And from my own experience, my friend's experience, um, Silicon Valley Bank was not uh, super strict about enforcing those covenants. I'll give you an example. Um, one of their covenants they almost always included was a cash balance covenant. That is, at any given time, you had to have a certain amount of cash sitting in Silicon Valley Bank bank accounts. And if you didn't, you were in breach of covenant. And in theory, they could declare you in default and demand that your company repay the full amount of whatever they loaned you. Um, they rarely enforce that. I mean, as long as the- Which is ironic. <laughs> it's ironic under the circumstances that they didn't enforce that. Maybe they'd be in a better position if they did, right? <laughs> well, <laughs> like it, 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 wasn't their, it wasn't their venture debt portfolio that did them in. Right, um, right, right. Which is the ironic thing, is they made these loans that most people would consider to be incredibly risky, uh, you know, unsecured loans to startups- um, with kind of loose enforcement of covenants. And that wasn't what did them in at all. That, that portfolio is fine. It's, the, it's, it's the, the safe stuff, the government bonds, treasuries, et cetera, that actually did them in, which that's the, that's the irony of this. Yeah. I, my, my, I was joking just more about like more cash on the books. You know, because oh, I think course. part of, not that that would have saved them based on the numbers that I saw, but, yes, you know, it, it, it wouldn't in have hurt if they had the, the, that cash on the books. Yeah, in the scheme of their venture, in the scheme of their entire portfolio of, you know, $200 billion, it was, their venture debt holdings were pretty small. Um, and, you know, one of the reasons they did that, they, they, they made those venture loans was, uh, you know, to continue and further their relationships with, VCs who back those companies where, you know, they did a much larger part of their business. Well, Brad, thank you so much for jumping on on such short notice. Uh, for folks who want to find Brad, he's at B-H-A-R-G-R-E-A-V-E-S at Twitter. We'll put that in the show notes uh, and we'll put uh, the Twitter thread that actually I saw that that just prompted me to invite you on in the first place. Uh, you also do some writing. You want to direct anybody to where they could find some of your written work? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm doing most of my writing on the real estate industry these days, uh, specifically focused on emerging trends. And I write that on a substack called Thesis Driven. Um, so we're focusing on new real estate themes. Great. Uh, and we'll put that in the show notes as well. Thank you, Brad. Thank you for being with us. Of course. Thank you so much for having me.